Good evening, everybody, and welcome back to The Haunted Collection with your host, writer, paranormal investigator, and haunted collector, Kevin Kane, back to bring you some more chilling tales of the supernatural. I trust you all had a good Friday the 13th last night. I know I did. I spent time watching Friday the 13th movies just to have a good time and celebrate the day because I think it's the only Friday the 13th we have this year, if I'm not mistaken. And nothing is better than watching Jason movies on the night of Friday the 13th. Which is why I was a little late getting this episode done. But tonight, (laughs) I'm getting it done here on Saturday the 14th. (laughs) Before we get started with the story tonight, as usual, I just want to invite you to myhaunteddolls.com. Visit our website and you'll find the shop where all of my books are on sale. You can get your autographed copy today. Non-fiction books about ghost stories and the items in my collection. There are supernatural novels out there. And there's other things out there too. Even merchandise like baseball caps, coffee mugs, car tags, bumper stickers. So be sure to check that out. While you're at it, you can go on the link page and follow the link to my YouTube channel, My Haunted Dolls, on YouTube, where... I have videos of some of the evidence I've captured, spirit box sessions with the haunted dolls in my collection, and we also do a live show every Tuesday night at 7 p.m. Central Time with Abnormal Alabama. Be sure to give them a like as well, and like and subscribe for My Haunted Dolls. Tonight's tale is taking us over across the state line from me to Mississippi to a beautiful plantation home nestled in the trees out there, or in the woods, not really in the trees, but in the woods out there in a clearing, sits this beautiful antebellum home that not a lot of people know about, right smack in the middle of, between West Point and Columbus, Mississippi. Oftentimes, Columbus includes it on their spring pilgrimage each year, or you can tour it daily if it's open again. Be sure to call ahead first, because I was told it was closed at one time, but hopefully it's back open. The Waverly Plantation, a plantation that is home to Little Girl Lost. Sometimes when Mrs. Robert Snow was conducting visitors on a tour of her spectacular home, Waverly Plantation, she is tempted to say, And here in this upstairs bedroom is where our ghost, the ghost of a little girl, used to take her afternoon naps. Instead, she tells about the tall tester bed 
with its hand-carved posts, the decorative iron lining in the fireplace, and other features of the great room. Though she does not mention the ghost of the little girl who haunts Waverly, Mr. Snow did glance quickly at the bed each time she entered the room. She always looked to see if it had been rumpled, the bed, rumpled by a weary child, a ghost child, looking for a rest. The ghost came to Waverly about two years after Mr. and Mrs. Robert Snow bought the abandoned show place in 1962. And though the spirit has made no manifestation of her presence for several years, or at least at the time they lived there, Mr. Snow kept hoping she would come back home for a spectral visit. Waverly itself, the house, was haunted before Mr. and Mr. Snow ever saw the fine old place. One day in the antique shop they owned in Philadelphia, Mississippi, a stranger walked in, and he described to them the grandest and most majestic house he had ever seen. The house, the man said, was somewhere along Tom Bigby River, between West Point and Columbus. He had come upon it quite by accident years before, and even then it was bearing the signs of neglect that houses show when people desert them and condemn them to loneliness. Well, I doubt there's anything left there now, the stranger told them. Some bricks and rotting timber, maybe. The house is probably gone. It was years ago when I saw it, but what a place it was. He talked of the massive structure and the graceful columns, the iron grill work, the marble steps leading to the recessed porches, but it was his description of the house's soaring rotunda that captured the snow's fancy. You walk into this huge entrance hall, he said, big as a ballroom, and I guess maybe that's what it was at one time. And you look up and there's this octagonal balcony all the way around the sides of the big hall. No supports or anything. Then above that, there's another balcony just like it. And then another balcony above that. Three balconies circling that tremendous dance room. Then you keep looking up and there's the cupola, all decorated with plaster work. Five or fifty-five or sixty feet, maybe, or maybe more than that, up above your head. And that's not all. There's a chandelier hanging down all the way from that high cupola to the middle of the ballroom. It's hard to believe there's a house like that sitting vacant out there in the woods. Or it was. As I said, it's been years since I saw it. So it might be gone by now. After the man had left their shop, Mr. and Mrs. Snow talked about the house and wondered about it, wondering if any structure could really be as magnificent as their customer had pictured it 
and yet be hiding in the forest. They could not forget his description of the house. They kept thinking of the sweeping rotunda with its three tiers of cantilevered balconies and of the cupola above that soared maybe sixty feet straight up from the floor. So one day Mr. Snow said, I've got to go look for that house. I can't get it out of my mind, and I must find out if it's still standing. So the Snows went house hunting. They drove to Columbus, Mississippi, the West Point area, and took a dirt road toward the river. At the river, they saw an elderly man who looked as if he had lived in the area for a long time. They described the house to him and asked if he knew where it was. Hey, you must be hunting the mansion, he said. It's still out there in the woods, far as I know. And he gave them directions for reaching the place. The couple parked their car where their informant had directed them to go, and they got out to begin their search on foot. They had gone only a short distance when the tops of tall magnolia trees, glistening in thickets of cedars and gums, indicated that they had found the home site. They pushed through heavy undergrowth and snarls of vines until they reached a sort of clearing, and there it was. Looming up before them was a huge house, grander than any they had ever imagined. Even with its sagging shutters and drab walls, and with its unchecked growth of strangling vegetation, the house had dignity and a touching air of defiance. The house looked as if it had been waiting for Mr. and Miss Snow just to rescue it. After the couple purchased the house in 1962, they and their three children hacked a path from the road to the house and moved in. For the first time since 1913, Waverly Mansion was occupied. During the nearly half-century that the grand old place stood vacant, ghostly legends flourished about Waverly. Nocturnal visitors told of hearing the sounds of sprightly music and laughter, spectral laughter, and the dancing of invisible feet in the long deserted house. Others told of seeing a kaleidoscope of faces in the tall, dusty mirrors that lined the stairwell. Faces of, perhaps, people who had once paused to gaze into those mirrors long ago, and whose reflections, albeit their energy, was eternally etched on the silvery surfaces. There were accounts, too, of a sighting of a ghostly Native American riding a loping horse across the prairie near Waverly. The Snows, when they heard the stories, listened with interest just as they listened to all stories about Waverly and its former occupants. 
they understood that such a house as theirs almost demanded the presence of ghosts. And they realized that it would have been considered an affront, a deliberate insult by the spirit world, if Waverly had not been properly haunted. They even decided who some of the ghosts might be, giving them names and identities. The Native American, of course, was Major John Pitchlin, who really was not a Native American at all, though most people thought he was. Pitchlin was the orphan son of an English officer, but he was reared by the Choctaws and adopted their customs. He grew to be a wealthy and influential man, and when he died in 1835, many men of prominence attended his funeral rites near the present site of Waverly Plantation. In accordance with Choctaw custom, Pitchland's war paraphernalia was placed in the coffin with him. His horse, a fine animal which Pitchland rode almost daily over the large acreage he owned, was brought to the edge of the grave to be killed and buried with his owner. At this point in the ritual, Judge Samuel Golson of Aberdeen interrupted the ceremony to plead for the horse's life. It is not necessary to take the life of this fine animal, he said to Pitchland's widow. The great spirit already has a gallant mount, a horse worthy of so fine a rider, waiting for our friend in the happy hunting grounds. The widow was moved by the judge's plea, and she spared the life of the horse. The ghostly Native American seen near Waverly could only be the restless spirit of John Pitchlin coming back to get his beloved horse and ride him to the happy hunting grounds. Sometimes the snows played a game of trying to guess whose ghostly images would be caught in the mirrors at Waverly. One of the reflections could, of course, certainly be that of Colonel Young himself, Colonel George Hampton Young, the builder of Waverly. Though he was not a vain man, Colonel Young must have at least looked at himself with pride. Any man would be proud of Waverly and of the family that Mr. Young reared there. Mr. Young was a native of Oglethorpe County, Georgia, and came to Mississippi in 1835 to attend the land sales at Pontotoc. He liked what he saw, and he stayed. He practiced law in Georgia and had served in the state legislature, but land development claimed his interest in Mississippi. He first settled on a farm near West Point on what was known as Colbert Prairies. The land bore the names of James, the name of James Colbert, a white settler among the Chickasaws, from whom Colonel Young bought five sections of land. Later, he purchased land at Mullins Bluff on the Tom Bigby River, where he established a permanent home for his family. 
It was here to Waverly that Mrs. Young brought boxwood plants from her beloved Georgia. She and her children and the boxwood plants jostled in a wagon from Georgia across northern Alabama to their new home in the Mississippi wilderness. The aristocratic boxwood, Mrs. Young felt, were appropriate reminders of the family's sentimental and cultural ties with Georgia. They somehow symbolized a way of life dear to her, so she cared for the plants during the tiring journey almost as carefully as she tendered her children. Mrs. Young planted her boxwood in the prairie soil, but she never saw the beauty they lent to the landscaping of Waverly because she died before that grand house was ever completed. The boxwoods still thrive at Waverly to this day, where visitors marvel at their size. The plants have grotesque shapes, though, having been pruned by generations of deer munching on their branches, which Mrs. Young, I'm sure, would never have approved of. The children grew up at Waverly, six sons and four daughters, and several of them were married there. Colonel Young had prepared for those weddings when he planned Waverly. The parlor contains an arched alcove outlined with decorative plastering designated as the wedding alcove. And here, the bridal couples stood for their wedding ceremonies. The imaginative and progressive master of Waverly incorporated other luxurious features into his home. The chandeliers were lighted with gas, which he manufactured by burning fat pine knots in a retort near the house. There were bathtubs, big enough for leisurely soaking, and for summer use, there was a brick and marble swimming pool at the front of a gentle hill. There were also an ice house, a cotton gin, a tannery, a sawmill, a greased mill, a brick kiln, orchards, vineyards, stables, gardens, kennels, waterhouses, a boathouse, and even a ferry. Waverly was almost a self-contained fiefdom. No one could fault the creator of such an estate if he paused to admire himself in the mirror every once in a while. Colonel Young's face would logically be one of those fleeting, changing montages of ghostly images glimpsed in the mirror. The Snows tried to name others who had interrupted walks across the ballroom to gaze at their reflections in the mirrors as well. Who could they be? Well, probably guests at the ball, those spectral dancers, their names long forgotten. Perhaps even soldiers, six of them bearing the proud name of Mr. Young himself, resplendent in their Confederate uniforms. Perhaps some of the faces are politicians who came to discuss current topics with Colonel Young back in those days. Others might be artisans and scholars, plantation musicians and traveling preachers, servants and overseers. They all left their mark and their energy on Waverly.
The ghostly sounds of revelry that reportedly came from the long, empty house could also be accounted for. With a family of four beautiful daughters and six handsome sons, Waverly's master delighted in hosting parties and balls for them. On many nights, hundreds of couples danced beneath the cupola in the great rotunda. Guests of the genial and hospitable Colonel Young. Surely, such sounds of gaiety and music would hover about Waverly, clamoring to be heard again and again and again. Though they found it entertaining to try to account for and identify the ghosts they had inherited, if indeed the legends were true, Mr. and Mrs. Snow still cannot explain some of the strange things that happened to them after they moved to Waverly. Their move was a hurried one. News of the purchase of the plantation manor attracted curiosity seekers, not all of them desirable or trustworthy, and Mr. and Miss Snow moved their family to Waverly earlier than they had planned to protect the structure from pillage. During the 49 years that Waverly stood vacant, vandals did little damage to it. Only three of the more than 700 walnut spindles outlining the stairs and the balconies were missing, and only one of the Venetian glass sidelights was broken. The mirrors, chandeliers, carpets, ornamental plasterings, and brass cornices remained undisturbed, as if by miracle, just as the final young resident had left them years before. Intruders respected Waverly too much to destroy it, or perhaps they were too scared to go near it. The living conditions were rather primitive the first few months after the snows began their restoration of Waverly. There was no electricity and no water either. During those early months, life for the snows was much more difficult than it had ever been for members of the young family in the years that they lived there. One night... The first week that they moved into Waverly, the entire Snow family was awakened by what sounded like an explosion, either in or quite near the house. The Snows grabbed up their flashlights and made a hurried search of the premises to find what had blown up and to assess the damage. However, they found absolutely nothing that could have caused the startling noise. A few nights later, the episode was repeated. Everybody in the family was awakened by a loud explosion. A search was made, but nothing was found. These explosive noises continued two or three nights each week during the first year the Snows lived at Waverly. After a while, they became somewhat accustomed to the, the explosions, and eventually they did not get out of bed to go investigate. They would mutter drowsily, Ah, there's that noise again, and just roll over and go back to sleep.
Mr. Snow said later, We still wonder about that explosive sound repeated night after night. It sounded like the noise made by slapping a big board or some other wide, flat object down on the surface of water with great force. It was louder than that, but that's the best description I can give of it. It seemed that something, something supernatural perhaps, was objecting to our moving into Waverly. We were never really afraid, but we were annoyed and puzzled. We still are puzzled. After that first year, the baffling noise was never heard again. Some months after the secession of the nighttime explosions, another presence, a gentle presence, came to Waverly. Mr. Snow was walking across the upstairs balcony one day when a child's voice called out quite distinctly, Mama! Mama! Mr. Snow glanced down quickly, half expecting to see a child standing beside her, but no one was there. It was not the familiar voice of one of her own children, nor did she recognize it as belonging to any child she knew. It was clear and sweet, and it had a memory-stirring quality as if it were calling from a time long past. That was the first of many occasions when Mr. Snow heard the child call out. Often it seemed that the little girl followed Mr. Snow as she went about her household tasks, and occasionally she would call, Mama, Mama as though to remind her busy mother that she was there. Several times the child's call came during the night, waking Mistress Snow and sending her across the hall to see about her children, even though she knew it was not they who had called out. Late one night, the Snow's daughter, Cindy, who was about 10 or 12 years old, came into her parents' room and said, I heard the little girl calling you. Is she all right? Each time she heard the little girl calling for her mama, Mr. Snow wondered who the phantom child was and who her mother was. Sometimes her heart ached for the child, for the sadness of a little girl lost. One evening, little Cindy was in her bedroom, playing with some toys when she looked up. Through her bedroom door, across that great, spacious room to the balcony and stairs across the way, she saw a little girl, a small girl of about maybe three or four years old, standing on the bottom steps, her face pressed against the spindles and looking directly at Cindy. Cindy stayed frozen in place for a few moments. But when she started to speak out to the girl, the spectral child vanished from the spot. 
There were a few more times when snows or guests of the house would spot that small child standing on the stairs looking out, as if looking for someone, perhaps her mama. Then she would turn as if going back up the stairs and vanish. There are several small graves in the burying ground near Waverly, but records do not indicate that there were deaths among the children in the young family. All ten of Colonel George Young's children grew to adulthood. Yet Mistress Snow believed that the voice belonged to a child who was accustomed to being at Waverly and who felt at home there. The voice could have been that of one of the Young's grandchildren who returned to Waverly with her mother to spend the war years there. Or it might have been the voice of a child who came with her family to be a refugee at Waverly during the tragic months of defeat and reconstruction. Many people accepted Colonel Young's hospitality during that time of the Civil War, and some of them likely brought small children with them. The spirit of the little girl, whatever her background, most often made herself known by her soft and daring calls for her mother, but there were other evidences of her presence as well. Sometimes, particularly on a long summer afternoon, Mr. Snow found the imprint of a child's body on a freshly made bed in the upstairs bedroom. The imprint looked as if a little girl, tired from play, had gone upstairs and had crawled into the high bed to take a nap in the cool quietness of the empty room. The child's calls and her afternoon naps continued over a period of five years or so. When Mr. Snow would go into the room and find the impression, she would try to smooth the blanket on the bed back out and she would leave the room only to come back minutes later and find the impression right back where it was before in the same spot on the bed. So defined was it that she could see the shape of the little head nestled into the pillow. The manifestations of her presence were not made daily or even weekly but Mr. Snow missed her when she stayed away too long. One time, Mr. and Miss Snow decided to stake out the room. They took a couple of chairs in the bedroom and sat down when they saw the impression on the bed there. They sat until the sun started going down outside, which probably took an hour or two after they first came in. They were talking to each other about different subjects when... A movement on the bed caught Miss Snow's eyes. She motioned for her husband to look. They watched as the impression suddenly shifted, as if the child laying there had sat up. The indentation then moved slowly toward the side of the bed and slid down the side of the cover. In shock, the snows watched as little bare feet prints made their way through the thick carpet from the bed to the doorway as their little girl lost 
left the room. One day, while she was busy in the kitchen, Mr. Snow heard the child's voice right beside her. I thought she would reach up and grab my apron. The voice was that close, Mr. Snow told later. For the first time, the child sounded distressed. Mama! 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 She called out as though she needed the immediate reassurance of her mother's presence. What's wrong? Mr. Snow asked out loud. Do you need anything? You know I'll help you if I can. She had never tried speaking to the spirit before. But unfortunately, there was no reply. After that, the child's voice was not heard any further at Waverly. However, occasionally, the indentation appeared on that bed. Research into the property a little deeper in the records showed that there was indeed a child who had died on the premises. In fact, she had died on the stairs where the little spirit had been seen. It was the child of a neighbor who had come over with her mother and had been playing on the stairs when she accidentally slipped and fell, breaking her neck and killing her instantly. After the death of the Snows, their daughters continued running the mansion, keeping it open for tours year-round. Often visitors would go and check on the room where that little girl's spirit had been seen, or at least the indentation of her spirit, lying on the bed to take a nap. And every once in a while, the indentation returns. Only for a little while during the afternoon, and then to disappear by sunset. Where does she go from there? We will probably never know, but one thing for certain, the little girl, the spirit child, is lost. hope you enjoyed that story, and I can tell you that I have visited Waverly on two occasions. On the first occasion, I did look into the room to see if I could spy the little girl's spirit or her indentation on the bed. The first visit, I did not see it, but on the second time, I could indeed see a little bit of ruffling on the bed as if someone were sitting there, and I felt like I was being watched. It was during the pilgrimage, so the the Snow's grandchildren, a couple of them very small, were there dressed in attire from antebellum times to welcome the guests. One of the little girls came up to me and tapped me on the leg, surprising me. No, I knew she was there, and I 
I knew that she was not a ghost, <laughs> but it surprised me that she came to me and tapped my leg and pointed, and she said, Look there, mister, look. And I looked where she was pointing, and there on the carpet were the small footprints of a child, bare footprints, as if a little girl had just walked freshly across the carpet toward the doorway where we stood. It gave me a little chill, but it also gave me a warm feeling. I believe the spirit is very sweet and just looking for a place to rest. And that is our story for this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. And I hope you visit my website, myhaunteddolls.com. Please be sure to check out my books and purchase one. And you can also see my new book, Dark Awakening and Other Tales for a Midnight Hour, a collection of my original ghostly and horror tales. So please be sure to look for that. It's also available on Amazon in paperback and hardback and also on ebook. Thank you for tuning in as always and we will see you soon for more tales of chills and terror. Until then, keep yourself safe, keep those doors and windows locked, but by all means, have a happy haunting. (laughs) 